Good morning. My name is Howard Fort. I'm one of the elders here at FBC, and I'm going to be reading from Luke 14, 28 to 33. Let me turn it over. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Howard. Good morning. We're in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35 this morning, and... Take a few minutes to look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, following Jesus. I want to open our time in prayer, but we also want to share a prayer request uh, with you. Gail Stroud went home to be with the Lord quite suddenly on Friday. If you know Gail and Mike, it was quite unexpected. And uh, so be in prayer for Mike and uh, his daughters and his family as they're sort of reeling a bit, as uh, many of us are who knew Gail and know Mike. Gratefully, we know that Gail is in the presence of her Savior, and um, pray for Mike's comfort and all of our comfort as we grieve. When we have a memorial service scheduled, we'll be sure to let you know. We can come out and recognize the, um, what Gail meant to all of us. So let's begin our time in, in the Word this morning with prayer, asking God's wisdom but as well as his comfort for those of us who are heavy-hearted. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus that you call us to relationship with you through redemption. And we pray, God, as we take some um, moments this morning to think about your word and reflect on it, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, press it into our hearts, convict us of sin we need to turn over to you. Uh, Encourage us and build us up in those areas where we've allowed the enemy to tear us down. And we pray, God, you would make us like Jesus even today. And uh, of course, Lord, we do pray for Mike and his whole family and Tasha and um, Austin and and just pray, God, that that you would provide comfort only you can give and uh, that you would open eyes to the glory of Christ even through the time of difficulty. In Jesus' name, Amen. Following Jesus. We're going to talk this morning about following Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, well, we should talk about that every week. We do, but this we're going to be relatively specific. Following Jesus. A couple of guys knew each other in college, two buddies. Maybe you've been in college or maybe the service and you had a buddy that you hung out with and you did everything together. You went down to the rec room and played ping pong and pool and And uh, if you're going to go out on the town, this was the guy you went with. And then one day, tragedy strikes. What is it? He meets a girl. (laughs) 
he meets a girl, and then suddenly you don't have your buddy. Now, does your buddy dislike you because now he's spending very little time with you and a whole lot of time with whoever this is, right? No, what has happened to this guy? What happened? All of a sudden, his priorities changed. That's what happened. Nothing changed. It's not that uh, he doesn't like his friends and didn't like the people he used to hang out with before, but suddenly now the heart has moved and all of his priorities have changed. And where he wants to spend time and what he wants to spend time doing have all been redone by this new relationship. And Jesus is really talking in these kinds of terms with us. He's saying, what, what happens when you're introduced to the Savior and find him by faith when we are followers of Jesus, following Jesus means he resets our priorities. He resets our priorities. Look at verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, that is these great crowds. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he can complete it or not? What we have here is Jesus discussing what it looks like to engage in a relationship with him and to have him rework our priorities properly. I'll say it plainly, as though Jesus needed anyone to say it more plainly than he. To follow Jesus, he must become our highest priority. To follow Jesus, Jesus has to become our highest priority. Priority. It's not that other things aren't good. It's not that other things can't exist in relationship with Christ. But relationship with Jesus, in order for it to actually be defined as relationship with Jesus, means he is the number one priority in the life of the believer. And what Jesus is going to let us know, whether we, um, even though we might already know this, is that can be really, really difficult. So Jesus is saying to have a relationship with me, that means having me as your number one priority in life, Jesus is saying. And let me be clear, he is saying, that can be really, really difficult. That can be, that can be hard to do. That, that is something that takes a whole lifetime to work out in our life, and, and it's difficult, and so he doesn't want to sugarcoat it at all. But he's also going to show us how this is a great thing for us. So to follow Jesus, he becomes our number one priority. Look at the, how he describes the family of somebody. Well, first let's look at verse 25, I should say. Great crowds accompanied him, and he talked to the crowds. Now, the, I, I think the crowds are interesting in the Gospels. You have some, some people in the Gospels that when you're reading through the Gospel, uh, the Gospels, you boo. Like whenever it says, and Jesus talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, boo. That's what we tend to do when we read through there. They're the bad guys, it seems like, right? I'm oversimplifying, of course. But we'd never do this with the crowds. But really, throughout the Gospels, the crowds are not necessarily looked upon with great favor. Because what Jesus is trying to do is help people understand that in order to follow me, you have to be called out of those who have rejected God. And, and if everybody is following Jesus, somebody's not. 
Because he is saying, you are, the crowds follow Jesus only because they perceive great benefit. Much smaller numbers follow Jesus when they encounter the realities of suffering. And so when he's speaking to the crowd, what he recognizes is, I've got a whole bunch of people who are listening to teaching because they perceive great benefit comes from this teaching. And now what he's going to try and do is help them see, following me means that there's some cost associated with it. And, and slowly over time, as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, the crowds get thinner and thinner and thinner until finally how many are there? None. He's totally alone on a cross. So the crowd here is, is those, stands in for those of us maybe who pursue and understand a relationship with God because we perceive there is great benefit in having a relationship with God. And so he confronts these realities in very stark terms. First of all, he talks about family. He says, I mean, really offensive. This is really offensive. Anyone who doesn't hate his father and mother can't follow me. That's, that's really terrible. I mean, doesn't it sound terrible? Yes, it does. Okay. I mean, how do you know it sounds terrible? Write it in a greeting card. <laughs> Happy birthday, mom. I love Jesus, so I hate you. I mean, that would be terrible. Don't ever write that. That's not what it's saying. We're going to make it clear what it's saying. But, but I always say this. When Jesus is trying to make the hair on our neck stand up, let it. Don't try and tone down your Bible. He's trying to make a point. So when it's smacking you upside the head, take it. What he wants us to do is look at our relationship with him and the relationship with everybody else and to have such devotion to him that all other relationships pale in comparison. This is especially true in the first century where most people were making a decision. Will I follow Jesus or will I maintain relational closeness with my family? Most of us nowadays, at least in this country, if we pursue a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't necessarily compromise our relationship with our family. In the first century, especially in Israel, to follow Jesus might mean your family is going to disown you and cut you off. And he wants people who might follow him to confront that reality. Do you want your family or do you want me? Do you want your marriage relationship or do you want me? Do you want to continue having a relationship with your brothers and sisters or do you want me? Do you want continued relationship with your children, your sons and your daughters, or will you follow me? Because in that day, many had to choose one or the other. And what he is simply saying is that if you want to follow me, and if that means your family will disown you, then have them disown you. That's what it will mean. He's saying if you want a relationship with me that both includes this family, he says, I don't have that solution for you right now. And he's calling you, follow me, meaning your priorities are all reset. Now, we have to understand how, how big a deal this is because in the first century, your family was your social security. Oftentimes, families and extended families lived in a, a, the similar or the same plot of land, maybe even having homes that are built upon one another. So the older ones in the family were cared for by the younger ones. And having multiple generations living in sort of a family compound created some safety and some security. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you want to follow me, if it means leaving the safety and security of the family compound, then so be it. You can't follow me without being willing to do that. And so Jesus isn't telling us to hate our family. Certainly not. He's saying, though, by comparison to our devotion and love for him, our family priority should be 
much lower. So he says, are you willing to endure persecution as a result of following me? And if, if following Jesus is only possible, if it means no persecution will come, Jesus is saying, then you, you're not going to follow me. And look how he explains it. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. All Jesus is saying here is saying my life is both a, a, a work of ministry for your benefit, meaning Jesus' life of sacrifice provides for us salvation through his sacrifice of death and the power of his resurrection. But not only does Jesus' life provide for our salvation, Jesus' life shows us the roadmap of what it means to follow him. So Jesus doesn't take one road to the cross and say, I'm going to take this road so you can take the comfortable road. What Jesus does is he takes the road to the cross and says, by the way, to follow me, you take the same road. And if you don't want your life to culminate in a cross, you don't want Jesus. He's not being rude. No, he's being rude. Let me rethink. He's being rude if you, if, you, if you want Jesus for something other than what he's offering. And so Jesus is simply saying, this is where I'm going. So I mean, I, This is ridiculous. But if you're hitchhiking, somebody pulls over and says, I'm going to Salem. And you say, oh, that sounds great. You get in the car and you're driving along an hour later and you say, are we almost to Reading? And they said, what are you talking about? I told you I was going to Salem. I know, I wanted a ride, but I don't want to ride to Salem. I want to ride to Reading. They said, you're in the wrong car. You, you need a car that's going to Reading. I don't know why cars go there, but apparently they do. <laughs> used to be it was the closest in and out. Now that we got an in and out, what? Well, they got water slides. You got that animal thing? Don't they have an animal thing there? Okay, I'm trying to think of reasons to go to Reading. They got that bridge that looks like a sundial. That's, I got a watch, don't need a bridge. Um, so... Sorry, if you're from Reading, <laughs> I don't know what to say now. Um, <laughs> I think I might have. <laughs> I'm, I'm offering you persecution if you're from Reading. You're like, I really endured it today. There you go. So we get, on, we get in Jesus' car, and we say, where's this car going? He goes, oh, the cross. Oh, I, I don't want to suffer. I don't like to be hard. And what's he say? You're in the wrong car. That's where this car is going. If you, don't want, if you want a car to comfort, don't get in this car. So again, he is not being rude because he's, all he's really telling people is saying, if you're going to follow me, let me be plain about what this looks like. And if you don't want what I'm, where I'm going, that's your call. But remember, he's talking to a crowd and he's trying to help them understand what it means to follow him because this crowd has become convinced that he is just one who offers great benefit, which he does, but he wants them to understand the road that they're going on. It is a road that could be marked with suffering. It could be marked with persecution. It could be marked with marginalization. It could be marked with a sense of pointlessness, aimlessness, where it's only a, where a life that is only has any significance to it if God deems to make use of it. And this is what Jesus is telling his followers. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus resets our priorities. Are we going to seek comfort as our highest priority, or are we going to seek 
the life that Jesus sees to give us. So he wants us to think carefully about it. Howard read this. Let's look again at verses uh, 28 and 29. Which of you desiring to build a tower does it first sit down and count the cost, whether or not he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build, wasn't able to finish. All Jesus wants people to do is, if you're thinking of following Jesus, say, okay, this is what a life in Christ looks like, and pay attention to it. And, he, and he's being straightforward about it. It could mean separation from family. It could mean suffering is going to come. It could mean great difficulty, and pay attention to it. If you don't want that, count, then figure, do the math. Say, well, I don't want that. I don't want any of that in my life. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't force anybody to be his followers. He said, well, if you don't want this, then you don't want to follow me. And he simply wants people to pay attention to what life following Christ looks like and to, to determine, is this what I want to do? When God made us in his image, he gave us a will, the ability to make decisions. Thank, thank God for his Holy Spirit that helps us to see the right way and the wrong way to go. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, you need, just like a builder would do, you need a good estimate of life in me looks like. And if you don't like what, what the cost is going to be, fair enough. But what we ought not to do, is what he's saying, is jump on board and hope the price is different. Jump on board and hope there isn't suffering and difficulty. There, is, uh, there are uh, real effects in the human life of following uh, Christ. Then he gives another example of a king, verse 31. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So this is a, a, another example of a king who's going to go into war. If he is wise, will assess properly whether or not he can gain victory over his enemy. But here's another angle that Jesus is trying to illustrate with this example. Because the person who is listening to Jesus teach here might simply say, wow, gee, following Jesus is, is uh, it's costly, uh, may not be very enjoyable, and... Uh, Boy, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to do that. And so Jesus said, now think about it. If you had a great king who was coming, and you examined the power of this great king, and you determined you couldn't have victory over him, would it make sense for you to make peace with this great king? Now, what is he talking about here? God's coming back. Now, you've got two options. You can defeat God. Good luck <laughs> with that. He's undefeated so far. Never, he's never lost, right? Or you could say, you know, what I ought to do, if you were wise, what I ought to do, the great king is returning. You would be a really, really good idea is to make peace with that great king before he gets here. So all the person has done in this case is he's realized he has two costs he's going to bear, and he's going to decide which one provides him the most benefit. But both of them cost him something. He can wait for the great king to return and try to defeat him and suffer a, an annihilation, a loss, a total loss. Or he can make peace with this king knowing there are some things about making peace with this king that, won't be, that he won't prefer. This has happened all throughout history. 
Kingdoms come in, and, and there's another great kingdom that will defeat them, and, and they will have to come up with terms of peace that they may not prefer. That throughout the Old Testament, they were always raiding the temple and giving all of their treasures to the Babylonians and the Assyrians to try and get them off their back because they determined the cost of losing all that treasure was lower than the cost of being defeated by the great king. And so what Jesus is saying here. I have given you the way to have peace with God. And in this life, certainly not in eternity, but in this life, there is opportunity for persecution and suffering. That's difficult. But which is worse, to have suffering and difficulty in this life, yet have peace with God, or to have comfort and ease in this life and have enmity with God? All he's saying is, think careful. Which way do you want it? Make peace with the great king. That's precisely what Jesus is offering. What he is saying is that I have come, Jesus is saying, I have come to humankind, I have come to the world in order to provide the way in which you, having rebelled against your creator, can once again have a relationship with him. And the way Jesus does that is by paying the price for our rebellion. He's going to die on the cross. What the Bible teaches is that death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin. He took upon himself the cost of our rebellion. Thankfully, he also raised us from the dead, so those who trust Christ understand we have peace with God because our rebellion has been paid for. Thank goodness, right? But not only that, we get to experience life with God forever because since we're in Christ, we participate with him in the resurrection. So we will be raised one day into eternity, holy and righteous, and we'll live forever with God. And during that time, the Bible says, if you've read how the book ends, I don't know, I don't want to give away the ending, but He'll wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away every tear. That day is coming. That day isn't here yet. You're not raised from the dead yet. Maybe you thought you were. I'm just kind of looking it over, see if I can see it. Nope, you're not. Sorry, you're not home yet. Neither am I. We aren't. So that means this life is going to be marked with difficulty. But what Jesus is calling us to do is make a really, really good decision. Make peace with the great king before he shows up. Because the cost of not having peace is greater than the cost of experiencing that peace with him. However, he is also saying, one of the options is not following Christ in this life without difficulty. That's not one of the options. The path of Christ was humble service that culminated at a cross. The path of following Christ is a path of what? Humble service where we carry our own cross. Look at verse 33. Just when it couldn't get, you thought it couldn't get any worse. Now he's going to mess with our stuff. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Pastor Jeff said, this is where I should take an offering. And I... <laughs> he's not even here to defend himself. And that, that's, he never would say that, and he didn't say this. This is not a vow of poverty. Remember, what we're talking about here, following Jesus resets our priorities. Just like he talked about earlier about our family relationships. We have a relationship with Jesus, so it reorients the priorities we have related to our other relationships. We have relationships with moms and dads and wives and husbands and children. And now having Christ as our Savior, we see all of those relationships in light of Him, our number one priority. The same thing happens with our stuff. 
It's a move toward making Christ our number one priority, not the things of this world. This is not a new topic. I've read this passage many, many times. I'm going to read it again. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 14. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of waters, of fountains, and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are, are iron, and out of the hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Man, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? I'm kind of hungry. Take care. Really, really critical words there. Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you what? Forget the Lord your God. When we have nothing, when we're broke, our prayer life is on fire. We are seeking the Lord morning, noon, and night. We turn off the radio in the car. We're praying to the Lord, Lord, help a brother out. But what he, the warning here is when we're full, take care lest you forget. This is what Jesus is getting at over in Luke chapter 14. He's saying, if I am your number one priority, if your priority has been reset, when you look at and understand that which God has given, we will take care. We will take care that in the ease and comfort and enjoyable things that God has seen fit to provide, and we thank the Lord for him, that we hold loosely to those and see Christ as our number one priority, not uh, making the number one priority either seeking the comforts that we would prefer or holding on to the comforts that we would prefer. He's not casting aspersions on those comforts. He's merely under, helping us understand the way the human heart works. That if we don't have the comforts, we, will, are, we are scheming the ways to find them. And when we have them, we are scheming to make sure we never lose them. And Jesus is saying, how about make your priority relationship with me? How about make your priority the kingdom? How might we see the stuff God has seen fit to grant us differently if our number one priority were the things of God and his kingdom? We can change our minds instead of seeing stuff as merely a way to gain comfort, instead to see stuff as a way to accomplish kingdom purposes and bringing glory to God himself. So all he's really wanting us to do is having our right priorities. He's not saying, cast aside your family, take a vow of poverty. He's saying with your family and with your stuff and with your life and with your hopes, look first to Jesus and have him be our number one priority is see things in the light of God and his kingdom. Maybe a way of thinking of this is not seeing how Jesus fits into our life, but instead of Jesus is our number one priority, how does our life fit into what he's up to? How does our family and our, our, our ambitions and our hopes and our resources 
fit into what he is doing. I might say it this way. If you don't want Jesus as the number one priority in your life, you don't want Jesus. That's it. He is king of the universe. Everything that is, he made, and he's not asking for partners. He's calling people to be worshipers. And if you don't want Jesus to be the number one priority in your life, I don't know what you're looking for, but you're not looking for him. He is God after all. Now, I'm not saying any of us sitting here today have Jesus as our number one priority. This is something we hope for through the course of living for him in our life. And, and this waxes and wanes, does it? Someday you wake up and all I care about today is Jesus. The next day you wake up, all I care about is cereal or the car running or the doctor appointment I got today. I mean, this comes and goes because we're human and we're frail. But at, at, at minimum, we must recognize what Jesus is saying here. And if you're saying, wow, this, this sounds kind of rude, this sounds kind of harsh. Remember, he's speaking to crowds. And he's thinning it out a little bit. If you want Jesus, there's a little bit of fairy dust on your life. Well, it's Southern Oregon. If you want Jesus, it's the ranch dressing of your life. It takes otherwise normal pepperoni pizza and turns it into really a delicacy. That's what you want Jesus to do. Just take your life. See, this is, this is how stuff happens. Suddenly, my life is pepperoni pizza, and Jesus is the ranch. That's a bumper sticker. That's a, somebody needs to get that going. Well, that's what we want. We just want Jesus to, like, you know, just a little bit of happiness on, the, on my life. And Jesus, no, no, no. I want to be the whole thing. I want to be the whole thing. I want to be so much of your life that the other stuff seems temporary. Because it is. That's what he's looking for here. And if this puts a, a knot in your gut, if this makes a, a bead of sweat run down the back of your neck, if this message is making you a little bit mad at me or your Bible, guess what? That means you're hearing it right. Because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to wake us up a little bit and say, why are we clinging so closely to things that last for such a little amount of time? Instead, let's make Jesus our thing. Okay, let's look at verses 34 and 35. We're going to just wrap up these two short verses. If we understand Jesus' purpose, what his goal is, which is by his grace being the number one priority in our life, then what we will see then is our life has purpose in him. And our life has purpose in him is much bigger than just simply living right or choosing right, doing the right things. What we have in following Jesus is he gives us purpose, purpose that actually matters, purpose that lasts forever. Let me read the last two verses of this passage, and, and you're very familiar with these, but let me read them nonetheless. Salt is good. Let's just hang on that for a minute. Salt is good, isn't it? Man, it's... I used to, you know, I think when we're younger, maybe, maybe this is just me, maybe not you, but when I'm younger, I had a real sweet tooth. As I get older, I have a salt tooth. It's like when you're sitting around at night, do I want, do I want ice cream or I want, you know, Ritz crackers? And I know my standards aren't real high. Don't judge me. <laughs> judge me. And, well, you know, something, something salty. Salt is good. Jesus is on to something here. But if salt has lost its taste, or some translations, its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's 
no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Following Jesus gives us purpose. I thought of this from a movie I saw with my kids. It's a, it's a movie. It's a fishing movie. It's called Finding Nemo. And uh, it's a sad ending because the, the, the dentist loses his, his favorite fish. Um, at the end of the movie, there's a fisherman, and they got this big dragnet, and they got all these fish. And uh, if you, have you, you've seen this film, right? Okay, good. Um, and all these fish, mostly it's these silver fish that have these lifeless eyes, pointless eyes, and not, their life is basically live, eat, and then be eaten. That's kind of... But then the dragnet is catching these fish, and then, then one of the stars of the movie is in the dragnet with them, and he remembers something he learned in the aquarium, that if you swim down, maybe you can keep the net from taking you up to your, um, you know, your death. Uh, <laughs> And so the, the, what's interesting is these, you have these lifeless uh, fish. They're just swimming around, just waiting for the, the in, inevitable to happen. And, and suddenly they start telling you, no, swim down. And so now all of a sudden these, these fish have purpose. They have a plan. Wait, wait, I have a purpose here. And it's really interesting. All of a sudden, now they're really excited. They're motivated. They have a direction to go and a place that they're headed. I don't want to give away how it ends, but they get away. They swim down. This is what's really fantastic about relationship with God is followers of Jesus are distinctive because their purpose is different than the purpose of the world. The world operates by a particular set of purposes, a, a particular set of things people ought to be about. The followers of Jesus are distinctive because he gives us a purpose that's different than the purpose that most people follow. And, and I want to sit on this just for a minute because many of us have read this passage, salt is good, and we understand this means as believers we ought to be distinctive. And what we have done is limited it to a very, very small portion. We've decided saltiness means I'm, if my non-believing friends feel guilty about being sinners, I'm being salty. So if I make sure when they bring up something that they did this weekend, I need to make sure they know I don't do that anymore. That's, that's what we perceive saltiness is, is letting the, the non-believing world know that, sure, I got saved from sin, but my, the same, let's just put it this way, a non-believing coworker, the sin I got saved from isn't nearly as bad as your sin. Because that's what we think saltiness is, being awesome. The, the saltiness he's talking about here is purpose. The one who's awesome is Jesus. You're not awesome because you're not Jesus. And what we have from Christ is purpose. Look at the, the, the uses of salt. Salt, number one, is used to flavor food, obviously. You put salt on something that doesn't have a lot of flavor. It enhances its flavor and, and, and creates a, a something that is a better to eat. Salt can also be used as a preservative if you take salt and put it on, on meats, it, it can keep it uh, from, from going bad in a shorter period of time. Salt is also used uh, in fertilizing, in improving soil and, and weed control in during those times. Salt was also used by the people of Israel during worship. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, which I know most of you have memorized. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, 
with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. It tells us a little bit of how God likes his food. I don't know. (laughs) Salt was a part of their worship. It was a fundamental element of their worship, was offering grain offerings uh, with salt. And so salt here, it's not merely talking, he's not merely talking about the, the taste distinctives. What is unique about salt is it has a lot of very practical purposes in the life of everyday life in Israel. Salt was a very pragmatic product. It did stuff that mattered. It kept food from spoiling. It made nasty food taste good. It could be used in worship. It could be used to condition soil. Once salt didn't taste right, didn't condition soil right, wouldn't preserve food right, what would it be used for? Nothing. It's discarded. It has no use. Salt in the household was only there to be used for a particular purpose, and once it no longer met that purpose, and usually it's because it became diluted with other things, once it no longer was useful to do its job, it's merely discarded. Everything about it is built on purpose. So following Jesus means we have distinctiveness because he has given us a particular purpose. He has given us a particular calling. Let's look first at the people of Israel. The people of Israel were called by God to be his holy people. He made a covenant promise with Abraham, and he renewed that promise with Isaac and Jacob, and he said, you will be my people, and I will bless the world through you. He he affirmed this covenant with David, saying, a son will come from your body, and he will sit on the throne forever, and his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. It will be a never-ending kingdom. So the, the people of Israel were called to a particular purpose. And what was the the purpose of the people of Israel being God's people? Was it so they could go to the land of milk and honey? Was it so they could walk through the Red Sea? Was it it so that their enemies wouldn't invade them? Was it so they could build a really beautiful gold-plated temple? What was the purpose? The people of God misunderstood it. This is what um, the Bible says in Hosea chapter 2. This is when they had disobeyed and rejected God and his purposes, and and so they had experienced significant suffering. Hosea chapter 2, 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. He was calling his people no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and you shall say, you, excuse me, you are my God. What had happened to the people of Israel is they had rejected God's purpose. And so what did God do? He turned them aside. And they went into captivity. And they went into suffering. Their distinctiveness was gone. They were no longer useful for the purpose he had for them. And what was their purpose? To bring a redeemer. That's always been the plan. It always was the plan. The plan was for the people of God to be marked with the covenant promises of God so that all of those covenant promises would have their ultimate fulfillment in the prophet that Moses predicted would come in Deuteronomy, that this prophet would come and fulfill all the promises of Israel and therefore be the savior of his people. So the purpose of Israel was not to go to the promised land, was not to hold a particular piece of real estate, was not to have lots of milk and honey. 
The purpose of the people of Israel was to what? Bring a redeemer, Jesus. That's the purpose. That's always been the plan. It started in Genesis 3, and it culminates in the Gospels. And as long as the people of God are no longer concerned about God's purpose, their distinctiveness is gone. It's not merely about unholiness and sin. It's about their abandoning God's purposes in their life. Does God have purposes for us, those of us who have put faith in Jesus for our salvation? Yes, of course. Ephesians 2, 8. Now this one, unlike the passage in Leviticus where I was teasing you, you may have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Just a reminder, you did not do anything to get saved. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. Did you work your way to Jesus? No, you didn't. If you worked your way to Jesus, you didn't find Jesus. The only way to get your way to Jesus is to trust him that he forgives somebody who sins as bad as you do. So, verse 10, is it up there? Here's the one we don't memorize. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared in beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a fancy way of saying what? You get saved to have a purpose. You did not say, get saved merely to go to heaven. Do you get to go to heaven? Yeehaw. You did not get saved merely so you wouldn't do naughty things as much. Are you saved for holiness? Yes. You are saved for purpose. You are saved to pursue a life in Christ. We are called out as God's people into salvation, forgiveness of sin, redemption, for good works which he prepares for us. To be called is to have purpose which is to be distinct, salty, useful, without purpose, discarded. That's what he says. To live a life in Christ without Christ-like purpose is to have abandoned our usefulness, our saltiness. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to look closely at what it means to follow him. To follow Jesus, if in our minds, to follow Jesus means to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, I'll see you in heaven, Jesus, we've missed the point. There's no saltiness there. There's no usefulness there. He calls us by his grace into relationship with him that over the course of our life, we make him number one in our life that our life would be marked by Christ-like purpose, humble service to others, that he would be glorified, and that is what saltiness looks like. I wrote too small. I'm trying to decide if I want to say what I wrote. I do. Um, don't know how to say this politely. I don't think I've been polite yet, so why start now? Um, we have so hung up this notion of distinctiveness on uh, good Christian values that we've missed most of what it means. So does the sense of distinctiveness include values informed by our Savior? Of course. Of course it does. But it's... But it, it's so much more than that, that becomes almost the postscript. The main concept here is we look at the way in which Jesus lived his life, 
What's his purpose? It's a redemptive purpose where hope is given to those who don't have it through humble service that results in ongoing suffering. That's the distinctiveness. It is not novel when Christians act like Christians. It is novel when Christians suffer for people who don't deserve it. And that's precisely the manner in which Jesus lived his life. Yes, it is a a personal holiness, but it's more than that. It's living our life marked by purpose. Okay, we got a, I know we have a big dinner to get to, and I'm I'm sure they're going to have salt, so you can have a salt discussion when you're there. Okay, one last thing, just to really, if I haven't annoyed you yet, I'm looking for ways to really drive you bonkers. Here we go. Someone is saying, well, boy, this, this verse makes me really nervous because what if, if I don't have purpose and I'm, I'm getting cast aside? Does that mean I'm not saved? And is there any way in, in, in this passage that I can have a sense of assurance that I'm, I'm in God's kingdom? You know, and I would say this, you really can have a sense of assurance in God's kingdom if you have trusted Jesus for forgiveness. If you have trusted Jesus to forgive you and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are saved and that cannot be lost. He said, well, but I want to feel assured. Stay salty. Jesus offers no comfort. He offers no comfort for those who have abandoned his purpose. And he's not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you're not saved. But if you want to abandon Christ's purpose and have assurance that you're in his kingdom... He doesn't do that for us here. He's intentionally rattling our cage. He's intentionally shaking us up. He said, oh, I, have, I'm, I don't care about Jesus' purpose. I have it my entire life. He's saying, you know what? Either you need to have a time of confession and repentance and return to the Lord, or maybe you need to get saved. Maybe you've been fooling yourself. And he said, well, Jesus, uh, Jesus wouldn't want me to feel that way. Have you read the Gospels? Like his biggest hobby is taking religious people and making us uncomfortable. So he doesn't offer any assurance here other than to say those who are in Christ by the Holy Spirit over the course of life, this is over the course of time, we want to see Jesus become our number one priority and have our life marked with purpose that's defined by him. That's that distinctiveness, that saltiness. Following Jesus, number one, resets our priorities and number two, gives us purpose. How would you describe your life in Jesus? There's one of two ways that we can describe our life in Jesus. I alluded to this earlier. Do you want, are you trying really, really, really hard to make room for Jesus in your life? That's you as number one and Jesus as number two. Or do you, by God's grace, want to see your life fit into Jesus? That's the trajectory of trying to have him as the number one priority. So I'm not trying to fit Jesus into the nooks and crannies of my life. I'm trying to take my life by God's grace and fit it into him. And that's where we have to go to see him become our number one priority. How does this work out? Maybe you've asked yourself this question after following Christ for some time. You know, I thought it would be different than this. You ever said that when you're following Christ? I thought, you know, I kind of thought it would be different than this. Or maybe you think the Christian life is nothing more than having some really well-thought-out moral values, some hot-button issues that you have a settled opinion on. Maybe you look at the, at the realities of the circumstances of your life and you assumed a, a Christ follower would never encounter these kinds of situations. 
I give God what I think he wants, and, and so I'm hoping he will give me the stuff I want. Or maybe your life is an is a ongoing negotiation with God, where you're saying, God, what do I have to give you? I have to give you 90 minutes on a Sunday? Do I have to give you some devotions on weekday mornings? Do I have to throw a little money your way? What do I have to give you so the rest I get from me? That, that's a common way of thinking about a relationship with with God. And what Jesus wants us to do is think differently. Having him as the number one priority means each and every moment of my day is thought through in terms of Christ is with me. What does is, what is glorifying him in this moment look like? What does it mean to work hard and diligently and honestly at work? What does it mean to, to serve my family even when it, it's costly? What does it, it mean to be devoted to seeking the gospel being proclaimed nearby as well as around the world? How do I make Christ the priority in my moments, not seek to put him off to the side? Okay, next, next thing. I've got a couple more things, and then we can uh, go. I don't know if you knew this or not, but following Jesus is hard. Anybody? Is, this, is it just me? Because if you're like, no, actually, it's pretty easy. I'm going to feel embarrassed. Following Jesus is hard. Here's the thing. For those that I know that are really in the struggle with Jesus, they think there's something wrong. And that's what, that's what is really hard, is, is following Jesus is hard. And so our assumption must have been, well, I must be doing something wrong because this is so difficult. And that's why a passage like this one today is so helpful for those of us who are in the fight. Following Jesus is hard. And the reality is, is if it's hard, you're probably doing it right. Because following Jesus is hard. We're not in heaven yet. Heaven is later. Now we're in the time of walking through that path that he, he gave us. Sometimes, some ways we might think about this. We're following Jesus and we think, I, I thought things would go better than they did. I thought my marriage would have experienced reconcil reconciliation and it never did. I, I was humble. I apologized. And, and it still didn't work out. I thought things at work would go better when I started doing the thing Jesus' way, and I still got fired. I tried all the tricks with my parent, with my kids, I should say. I bought all the right books, and I read all the right books of the Bible, and I did all the right things, and, and I still wonder what the path of their life is going to be. Following is Jesus, Jesus is hard, and we aren't able to do it. In fact, it is so hard... He says, you know what? This is going to be too hard for you. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. That, that's how hard it is to follow Jesus. He finally says, you know what? You can't do it. You can't pull this off. John chapter 16, uh, verse 7. This isn't on the, the screens. Maybe you didn't know this. Verses can be in the Bible and not be on the screen. Jesus says this to his disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go... I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit comes to help us. That's how hard following Jesus is. He sends us the, the Holy Spirit of God to reside in us. Verse 12 of John 16. I still have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now. So Jesus, talking to his disciples, says, I actually have some things to teach you. You'll, you'll never get it. You guys are, you'll never get it. There's no way for you to get this if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. This is Jesus telling them to, you would think Peter of all would raise it. You're here, Jesus. Why don't you just explain it more clearly? He said, no, you, you can't pull this off. You are so limited. 
in your capacity that what I have for you, you cannot handle unless you have the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. If you have found that your Christian life is characterized by difficulty, you might want to go easy on yourself. It might not be that you're doing it wrong. It might be that the Holy Spirit is doing a fantastic work of glory in your life. I don't want your life to be hard. I don't want my life to be hard. But if it is, it is a joy to know that Jesus is working on us in it. Okay, last thing, called the purpose. In your life today, how can you see Jesus' pur- purpose show up in your life? And I wanted to give you an easy way to do this. Galatians 5.22. This will be up on the screen because it's in your Bible. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is basically a nice way of saying this is what your Savior is like. Fruit of the Spirit Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, the fruit of Christ in you are these things. Jesus' purpose is to make us like him. That's the payoff for the Christian life, to make us like him. What's Jesus like? There it is on the screen. So I'm going to go easy on you. And, And when exactly is that happening? Here we go. Just pick one this week. Pick one. No, go ahead. You see it up on the screen. I'll even give you a gimme. Pick one you kind of got down. Like, I, I'm pretty good at this one. Just pick one. You want to live with purpose this week, right? You want to live with saltiness this week? Pick something that's like Jesus. There it is. I don't know. Which one do you want? Don't pick patience. Oh, my lands, don't pick that one. You will have a terrible week. Okay, maybe we should pick patience. So pick one. And then pick a person. Did you pick one already? I'm, I'm being serious. It's homework. I don't do homework very often. Here we go. Pick one. And then pick a person where you can show that to them like Jesus would. There's purpose. Now, this week, you've got Jesus-y purpose. And you say, well, well I want something bigger. I want to start a 501c3 nonprofit that's going to change the world. Jesus did that. It's called the church. You're going to have to move on from that. Here's purpose that's eternal to show goodness to someone in my life where goodness is hard to show them, to show patience in my home. That's that's Jesus-y kind of purpose. To have self-control, the ability to tell myself to do good things that I don't want to do, the ability to tell myself by the power of the Spirit to say no to sin. There's a good one. You've got, there's a self-control one. If somebody, you, are, is anybody here struggling with sin? Okay, good. We got some. We got some people. The rest of you are too. You just want to say it. Well, I want to honor my marriage by saying no to that this week. I want to honor my employer by saying no to laziness this week. I want to honor my children by saying no to short temper this week. That's Jesus-y kind of purpose. That's saltiness. Well, that seems kind of low, low-hanging fruit. This is low-hanging fruit. There you go. Following Jesus resets our priorities. Following Jesus gives us purpose, which is this, living like Jesus in the real relationships of our life. And that's where saltiness shows up. 
and the glory of Christ shows up in our hearts. Jesus, we thank you for the kindness you've shown us and how patient you have been with us, how you have shown us love, and when you counter, encounter us, you are filled with joy and patience and kindness. God, we are praying this week as we think about what it means to have you as our number one priority, that you would give us the power of the Spirit to live as people with purpose. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the strength to, to do that past this afternoon and, and past Monday and Tuesday and even into Wednesday and Thursday when it's getting hard and difficult and the enemy is whispering in our ear that we haven't done it right. Give us the joy, Lord, of seeing your purpose worked out in our hearts. Father, I pray for those who are here right now that we have talked about the fact that you are returning and they know in their heart they have not yet made peace with you, the great king. I pray in this moment, even though we've talked about the realities of what it means to walk with you in this life, that even still your spirit would move in their hearts to trust you for forgiveness. That they would make peace with you before the day comes. That you would grant them new life because they trust you. We thank you for Jesus. I can't wait till you come back. Until you do, Lord, give us strength to endure to the end. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?